take your Bibles, if you have one, and turn to Ezekiel chapter 43. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at this passage and reading verses 1 to 12. Now, if you don't have a Bible, um, then I'd invite you to take the one that's on the rack in front of you. You can find Ezekiel 43 on page 865. And while you're you're turning there, um, let me just... Um, let you know, if, if you are a visitor uh, to this church, if you're a recent visitor or a first-time visitor, it's helpful to, to, to kind of be reminded, of what, what are we doing with this time right now? Like, what are we, what are, what are we doing? In the, the, the intention is not to be cryptic about what happens in a worship service or how things go. What we do every week is we examine and read a portion of the, of the Bible and then take about 30 minutes to, to think about what is it saying and why does it matter? And we tend to do that in series. So we take portions of the Bible and we, we read through them, uh, you know, sort of uh, week after week in sort of a progression um, in a series. And what we've been doing this spring is we've been looking at the writings of this prophet named Ezekiel who lived in the days before and during and after the fall of the city of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C. And if, and if you're now looking at Ezekiel 43, which is what we're looking at this morning, then we're on the other side of that fall of, of Jerusalem, right? The, the city, the temple, they've, they've been destroyed. Many of the people, particularly those people of power and influence in, in Israelite society, ha- have been taken away in exile into Babylon. But God, and this is, this is really what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, God through Ezekiel has been speaking words of hope Hope and restoration, and starting with Ezekiel chapter 40, what, what he's doing is he's given Ezekiel a, 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 a vision, a vision of, of restoration, of what, God, of what the kingdom of God will look like where God's relationship is restored with his people. So that's where we find ourselves, in the middle of that, that vision of restoration, of what a restored um, relationship with God looks like and what that will, what that will look like. So let's, listen as I read Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 12. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River. And I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, and then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings at their high places." When they place their threshold door, their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the lifeless idols of their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan, and if they are ashamed of all they've done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. 
All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you speak to us through it. And God, I just pray now that as we study it, you would do just that. That the power of your Holy Spirit would apply what you have shown us in Ezekiel 43 and make it clear. Make it clear how it communicates to us what you've done for us in the past and how that changes us to be able to live for you in the future. We're grateful, Lord, for this church and the opportunity to come and gather and study without interruption your word. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do that. I pray, Lord, that you would use me in the way that you would see fit to accomplish that task for your honor and glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, what Kevin did was introduce to us in chapters 40, 41, and 42 the vision of this magnificent new creation, this amazing residence, the temple of God. And, and he joked that he was generously saving for me the climax of, the, of, of what was being told in 40, 41, and 42. He was saving the climax for me. So here we are, right? Because in 40, 41, and 42, you have the layout of this temple, the specs of the temple. But you have not yet met the owner. And really, you, you've probably had this experience, you can't really understand a magnificent home until you understand the person who has lived there. Right? For example, last summer, Stacy and I went and we, we visited the Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina. And, and, and now it's not, it's not nearly as large as the, the Palace of the Sultan of Brunei that Kevin described to you last week. So I'm not, we're not getting into a contest of which palace is the bigger palace or anything like that. Right? But from an American perspective, the, the 35 bedrooms, the 40, 43 bathrooms in the Biltmore Mansion, right, it makes it, it's the largest, the largest privately owned house in the United States. And, and, and the point is that when we were there, when we were visiting there, it was very obvious that you couldn't tell the story of the Biltmore Estate without telling the story of the owner. It didn't really make sense to sort of separate them. Everywhere is the, is, is the history of, of who built it, who, who lived here, right? Because you can't understand the Biltmore Estate without understanding George Vanderbilt, who was the youngest son of the, the railroad tycoon, Henry, William Henry Vanderbilt. And you can have the same experience in Delaware. You don't have to travel to North Carolina for that, right? If you visit Hagley or Winterthur or, or the Nemours uh, Mansion, you can certainly appreciate the architecture of these beautiful buildings, but an understanding of the structure is, is really incomplete unless you understand the DuPont families that built them and, and lived in them. In other words, you don't really understand the house, no matter how detailed your knowledge of its design and structure, until you've met the owner. Well, last week in, in Ezekiel 40, 41, and 42, we read in detail the design and the structure of this magnificent house, but this morning in chapter 43, we meet the owner. And, and I want us to just just take the structure that the text I read gives to us to help us see why this is such a big deal. And we're just going to go right, just go through what we just read in, in three sections and help us see the significance of what's happening here. Right? The Lord is back in His residence, and it would be very helpful for us to see, first, how He arrives, that's verses 1 to 5, right? who He is, verses 6 to 9, and how we should react, verses 10 to 12. Right? How he arrives, who he is, and how we should react. Now, how he arrives. We have to be honest. Right? The entrance 
is always one of the best moments when you're anticipating someone arriving, right? someone of prominence, someone of magnificence, something great. When you're, it's, it's, it's the waiting, it's the entrance that is, that is one of the most magnificent parts of it. For example, one time I attended a conference uh, or a concert at the Wells Fargo Center in, in Philadelphia, right, big, big concert, and, and, and the opening was the floor opened up of the stage, and, and the performer rose out of the, of, the, of the stage, from beneath the stage, playing the piano of the opening song. And, and the crowd just, just roared with excitement upon the entrance. Or sometimes the arrival actually hushes the crowd, has the, the opposite effect. I was once at a, a large outdoor um, event where the President of the United States was going to be speaking. And it was a big crowd, and it was very, a lot of excitement, a lot of noise, very energetic, very loud, until you began to hear the rotors of the presidential helicopter, Marine One. And as the helicopter flew overhead, this hush just fell over the crowd. Now, God's arrival in the temple in verses 1 to 5 comes first with a roar and then with a hush. The roar comes from God. Verse 2, it says, Ezekiel says that the glory of the Lord, as the glory of the Lord approached the temple, his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the whole land just lit up, right? The roar comes from God. The hush <laughs> comes from Ezekiel. Because in verse 3, it says that he just falls down on his face, overwhelmed by what he's seeing. He, he can't even stay standing. And, and there is probably a sense in which he's overwhelmed by the by the experience of it all, the sound, the light, right? That's overwhelming to him. But at the same time, I think it's not just the experience that's overwhelming to him, it's the significance of what's happening that is overwhelming to him. All right, verse 1 tells us that Ezekiel was taken to the gate facing east. Now, that would be the main entrance to the, to the temple. And interestingly, it is the same gate through which the glory of the Lord had left the old temple prior to its being destroyed. In Ezekiel chapter 10, if you went all the way back to the beginning of Ezekiel in verses 18 and 19, it tells us that the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, but before going, the glory of the Lord stops there along with the angels at the east gate. Right, so now, Ezekiel 43, God is returning to the new temple, and he's coming through the east gate, the same door from which he left, which means that at least in some manner, What's happening here is meant to be a reversal. It's, it's meant to symbolize an undoing of what, had, of what had happened before. And that's significant because if you go back, if you go back to and read the whole first part of Ezekiel's ministry, Ezekiel chapter 1, maybe all the way through chapter 11, if you read that, you'll see that God did not leave the old temple on the best of terms. It was not the, it was not the best of circumstances when he, when he left. And here, in, in verse 3 of Ezekiel 43, he's making the connection, right? He says, Ezekiel actually says, he's having, he's, in this vision he's having now, it's, it reminds him of the one that he had before, back when God had come to destroy the city of Jerusalem, when he was leaving the temple. But now he's back. And we'll learn more about, about how the return of the king to the, to the palace actually does reverse the effects of the, of the departure, but for, uh, for now... It's enough for us to see that he, that he is back and that when he arrives, he's making a statement. Right? That's point number one, how he arrives. He arrives in magnificent glory and, and, and from the same direction that he left. Now, which then leads us to want to know a little bit more about point number two, who he is. Right? Who is the sovereign after all? Right? How, what do we know about the sovereign, the master of the house who is now, who is now returned? 
Well, verses 6 to 10, if, you know, we read that. It's not an exhaustive description of all the characteristics of God, but what we learn there is pretty significant. And, and it comes, it's coming, what we learn about God is coming from God, God himself. Verse 6 tells us that while the man was standing beside him, Ezekiel heard someone speaking to him from inside the temple. As Kevin explained to you last week, right, this man with Ezekiel is the heavenly tour guide. This is the, the angel that's been Ezekiel's guide through the, through the reconstructed temple. This is what it would look like. He's giving them the measurements. He's taking Ezekiel on a tour through it. But the voice that Ezekiel now hears is from God himself, coming from the, the inside of the temple now that the glory of God has returned. And what God is communicating is, is two very crucial pieces of information that are essential reminders of what he has been telling his people already for centuries. He wants them to, he wants them to know. He said, okay, I'm, I've been gone. I, the, the glory has been gone, but the glory has now returned. And just in case you're wondering, I'm still holy, and I still desire to live with my people. Right? In verse 7, he makes, he makes it clear. He says, I'm occupying this house of mine so that I can live among the Israelites forever. Now, that's a glorious promise to be reminded of. And one that you could almost understand why the Israelites might have thought was, was gone. Might have rightly kind of wondered if the promise of God to be with his people forever, if that promise that had been made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to Moses and his brother Aaron, to, to, to David and his son Solomon, if that promise, because of everything that they had done, had now somehow been revoked. And God is here to say it hasn't been. He's still planning to, to be with them forever. But he's also telling them, hey, I'm, but I'm still holy. And as a result then, just as Pastor Brown was saying a little bit ago, there's no lessening of the standard for, for holiness among God's people, which means that, that, that still, as the standard has always been, God's people have to be holy in order to be in the presence of a holy God. But we know that hasn't always been so, of course. And in verse 7, and again in verse 9, there seems to be two categories of rebellion that God is, pri is, is primarily focusing on. Right? Two things that he kind of calls out. He says, okay, let me just summarize the sin that I'm talking about that is different, that it separates you from me. This is, let me just summarize in two categories the sin that I'm talking about. First category is, is prostitution. Now, literal prostitution was probably probably somewhat in view. It was a part of many of the religious practices of the other nations in that region and had been incorporated at times in the religious practices of God's people as they rebelled against him. But, but metaphorically, the implications are even, even larger than that. Right? Because God on several occasions, even in Ezekiel chapter 16, uses that, that term, that, that metaphor, to refer to the people of Israel, refer to the people of Israel as, as a prostitute because they, were, they had sought their, their, their identity, their satisfaction in something besides their one true love, and that's God himself. Right? And, and you see the same, same sort of concept in this other sin, this other category of sin that God condemns, when he says, when he talks about the, their lifeless, the lifeless idols of their kings at the high places. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What's that phrase mean? Lifeless idols of their kings at their high places. Some translations actually translate the Hebrew phrase literally. Right, that it's referring to the dead bodies of their former kings. And, that's, and that is what it says, but it, it's, probably, it's probably not so much the actual dead bodies that were being, uh, being worshipped as it, as it was a memorial, a, a monument of some kind, sort of memory markers of, of, of kings. And Now, 
Hey, Memorial Day weekend disclaimer. I don't think so much that God is, is saying here that the people of Israel, that in their, in their making of monuments to help them remember their kings, that that in itself was wrong. I don't think he's, he's saying that. But, but what made it wrong was the fact that they were being set up where? At the high places, places of worship. They were using these, these monuments, these memory markers to, 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 their, to, their, to their dead kings as, as objects, as instruments of, of worship. Now then, if we, if we sort of rightly then appropriate those meanings behind, behind each of these categories, then what we see is a standard of holiness that is much greater than just avoiding, uh, avoiding prostitutes and not bowing down to the statue of, of Honest Abe at the Lincoln Memorial. It's much bigger than that. Right? What we're seeing is that God will not challenge, will not tolerate any challenge to His authority. There is to be no competition to his, to, to, to his authority. We, we owe him absolute allegiance. Nothing else can satisfy our, our, our desires for meaning, for value, for worth, and significance. Nothing else is worthy of our, of our attention, of our respect, of our devotion, and our honor in place of God. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. What are those things for you? Right? Which, which relationship, what, what job, what circumstance are you leaning on or have a tendency to lean on to, to, to fill you in a way that only God really can. Right? What in your life, your, your, your career, your education, your health, even your family, right? what are you giving yourself to under the, under the illusion that if you just perform your service to that thing well enough, then it will owe you, it will pay you back in a way that will bring you the lasting peace and satisfaction that you crave. Right? Because... Because what, what, what God is saying to Ezekiel here is, is that that will never work. Right? Not only is seeking your ultimate satisfaction of these things a terrible affront to the holy God who made us and who sustains us, but it will never produce what you're actually looking for. Right? This is what I mean. You, you can and you should work hard in your job to advance your career. Right? Seek professional success. But it is very possible to do that and then think that your career owes you happiness, that, that, it, that it actually owes you something that it can never deliver. And then as a result, you're, you're crushed when, 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 when that job goes away or when, or when you achieve professional success and it doesn't really bring the satisfaction that you thought it was going to be or you retire and your whole life had been wrapped up in something that is now, that is now gone. Right? You can and you should. Invest years into the right education and work hard to get degrees and certifications and all those things. But you can do that in such a way where you're still crushed and shocked where after all that work, the job acceptance letters aren't just flowing in. And people aren't nearly as impressed by the letters that are after your name as you think they should be. Right? You can and you should eat responsibly and exercise and do all the right things for your health. But you can do that in such a way that you're, you're shocked and surprised when you get the diagnosis that you've always feared. Right? You can and you should read all the right books, attend all the right parenting Sunday school classes, but you can do that in such a way that you become shocked and dismayed that your children on a, on a daily basis don't rise up and say, thank you so much for being such a wonderful, loving parent, for making decisions on my behalf that I would never make on my own in my foolishness, I am just so grateful that I have you as a parent. You can be shocked and dismayed if that's what you're doing, if you're attempting to look into those things for something that will, 
that, that those things can never deliver, that they never promise. None of those things work. They're good things that are given an impossible job, and as a result, they'll fail. That's the sin of, of prostitution and lifeless idols that God's talking about here. That's the historic sin of God's people, and it is the daily sin of our hearts. And it cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. Which, which really means that if we're honest, that while this is a very nice promise that God is returning to be with His people and all, we're really not that much better off, much better, better positioned for success than we were before. Unless there's something more to the plan than we initially consider here. Right? So we have, to, we have to consider our response to this. Right? When the Sovereign Lord returns to, the, to, to His temple, we see how He arrives in magnificent glory to undo the past. Right? We, receive, we see who He is, a holy God who still desires to dwell with His people. But we also have to look at how we react to it. Look back at Ezekiel 43. And let me just read verses 10 and 11 again. The voice of God comes to Ezekiel again, and this time says, Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider the plan, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design, and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. All right, so what's the right reaction? When the temple is described, like we looked at last week, when the, when the resident king arrives, just like we looked, we've looked at this week, what's the reaction to that? Well, the first reaction ought to be shame. That's what Ezekiel says. And it makes sense. If you really understand what's being communicated about God and what's being communicated about us, His holy perfection, and the, and the disgraceful tendency of our hearts to, to, to seek our satisfaction in something else, then it, then it makes sense. If you're really understanding those two things rightly, then, then the right response is a degree of shame. Now, I'm, just to be clear, I'm not talking about the, the misplaced shame that comes from being the victim of, of trauma or abuse, right? from something that's been done to you by another person that makes you feel unworthy, that makes you feel ashamed. That's not the kind of shame that, that is being talked about here. What's being talked about here and what I'm talking about is the, is the guilt and the remorse that comes from seeing yourself against the standard of a perfect holy God, right? The recognition that your own conduct, your own attitudes, your own idolatry, in a, in a word, have indeed made you unworthy to be in His presence, unworthy to have Him dwell with you, right? That, that's actually a very appropriate response when the glory of God rushes into your presence, Right? It's, why, it's why when the glory of God passed by Moses, they, he had to hide behind a rock. It's why when the, when, when, when the prophet Isaiah is given a vision of the throne room of God, he falls to his face and he says, he says woe to me, I'm undone. I'm an unclean man. It's, it's why Ezekiel in, in verse 3 right here that we looked at, it's why he falls face down when the glory of the Lord rushes in. That's the right response when you know yourself and when you know God. Right, but let's say you appreciate that. Let's say you, let's say you get that. You feel that way. What do you do now? Right? God tells Ezekiel that when the people are ashamed, when they recognize their sins, verse 10, that they need to consider the plan. Make known to them, when they understand, if they are ashamed, I want you to make known to them the plan and the design of the temple. Right? God says, Ezekiel, when they recognize their sin and the consequences of it, I want you to tell them the plan again. I want you to remind them that I've got a plan, a plan and a way for sin to be dealt with, for us to be reconciled. 
for the holiness of God to be able to dwell with His people. One of the huge interpretive questions as it relates to, to this passage is whether Ezekiel is telling us about a physical temple that's going to be rebuilt or a temple that symbolizes something yet to come in the, in the future. Well, we do know, right, just from historical fact, that, that a temple was ultimately rebuilt in Jerusalem after the exiles returned. But while Ezekiel gives us dimensions for this dwelling place of God that we looked at last week, he never actually gives, interestingly, an explicit command and instructions to physically build the temple that he's talking about here. He had done that with the tabernacle. He had done that with Solomon's temple. And so while it, it, it might, it's not less than the fact, I mean, it, doesn't, it is reminding us that a physical temple was going to be rebuilt, that it was going to happen in Jerusalem when the exiles returned, but we also know that it has to, it has to mean something more than that. Even if it's not less than that, it has to be something more than that. One of the commentators, Christopher Wright, says, says it like this. He says, The purpose of Ezekiel's vision was not to provide guidance as to how the temple was to be rebuilt, but to provide reassurance of the hope that it would be rebuilt and to point beyond the physical temple to the restored relationship between God in His holiness and His humble, obedient people. In other words, this vision is about more than buildings. It's about God restoring the relationship that he had with his people, as Ezekiel says, forever. And the reason why you know it has to be about more than just a, the physical building that was going to be rebuilt is because even after the temple was rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem by the returning exiles, the rebellion of God's people continued <laughs> against God. Right? They, they continued to defile the temple through inappropriate worship. Right? So that means that either... The plan that God was telling Ezekiel about here failed, or the plan was always about something that was much greater than that. And we know from history that, 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 that as it continued to unfold, the plan was certainly about something greater. And this is what it was. The plan God ultimately had in mind as the way in which he was going to dwell with his people was through Jesus. The promise for God to be with his people pointed to Jesus. Matthew tells us at the very beginning of his, of his account of, of Jesus' life that Jesus was going to be called Emmanuel. Right? He's quoting the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 7. Why? Because what does Emmanuel mean? Emmanuel means God with us. And it's remarkable if you look through the accounts of Jesus' life how, how frequently and how clearly Jesus is described as the glory of God in our midst. The glory of God dwelling with, with, with his people. Just just two quick examples. In John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the Word. That is the ultimate expression of God. And it says that in Jesus, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, right? The, the, he, he's living with us. He's being with His people. And we have seen His glory. In John chapter 2, the very first miracle that, that, that John records Jesus doing is when He turns water into wine at this great big party. And, and, and John tells us that, that this turning water to wine at this wedding, it wasn't just a party trick. It was an act designed to, this is what John says, to reveal his glory. And that's because the, the Jesus' glory isn't something that just came upon him. It wasn't something that was given. It's who he is. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 says that the Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus is the vehicle by which the glory of God comes and dwells with his people. 
which is great, of course, but it doesn't, as far as it goes, doesn't address the problem of our sin and our unworthiness to be in the presence of, of that glory, whether it's in the person of Jesus or not. And the disciples, when they had experiences of Jesus' glory, like when he calmed the, the sea, and they saw just a glimpse of the, the glory and the power he had, their reaction was fear. Right? So just simply the fact that Jesus' glory come to be among us doesn't actually solve the problem. But the book of Hebrews helps, helps us with that as well. Because Jesus, Jesus wears the crown of God's glory through his identity, right? But, but Hebrews 2.9 tells us that Jesus is also crowned with glory, not just, be, not just because of who he is, but because of what he has done. Listen carefully. Hebrews 2.9 says that, that, that we see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Right? Don't miss that, right? We, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Why? Why do we see him as, as who he is? We see him as who he is because he suffered death on our behalf. The just consequences of sin in the presence of God's glory is the death of the sinner. And yet here we have the one who is God's glory willing to use that glory to take the place of the sinner. He tasted death so that we wouldn't have to. That's the plan. Right? That's what the vision of the, of the temple and everything that would follow Ezekiel 43 in the next couple chapters would tell us about. The altar, the sacrifices, the priests, everything. It's meant to point us to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate priest made for us. Sacrifice made for us. You want to know the plan that Ezekiel tell, wants us to tell the, tell the people? This is the plan. This is where it leads. It leads us to the death for you of the one who was himself the very expression of God's glory. When Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem, that very last week of his life, when, where he would give his life as that atoning sacrifice, do you know what direction he came from? Hey, he came from the Mount of Olives. He came from the village of Bethany. That's where he came from. Any guesses as to which direction that is relative to the city of Jerusalem? It's from the east. The glory of the Lord returns, according to Ezekiel, from the east because that's how it left. And its return in the same direction means that there is an undoing of the exit. And in Jesus, that's how the exit is undoed, undone. Right? So how do we react when God arrives and reveals himself? We reject our sin and we put our faith in the plan of redemption. We trust in the one whose glory was used to die in our place. Because this is not just an abstract discussion about the temple. This is a discussion about, about me and you. Look back at verse 8. Isn't that, it's just, isn't that a strange verse? God says it made him angry when they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. That is a bit obscure sounding, but, but it seems as if someone, perhaps one of the kings in, in, in history, had been building their house too close to the divine house. And the personal residence was too close, to the, too close to the temple. The personal space infringing upon the holy space. Right? So, now see, this is where it becomes very personal because now, today, right, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, where's the temple now? Right? Where does the presence of God reside now? When we believe in Jesus, like Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, when we believe in Jesus, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. As a result, like Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, right, we are, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, do you see what's happened? 
our personal residence no longer, no, no longer defiles the divine residence. Right? No, the divine residence purifies the personal residence. Do you see? Our personal space doesn't pollute the divine space because the divine space, through, this, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, has now purified the personal. And so God is able to dwell in us. Now, be very careful of the implications of that because it means that when the Lord enters his temple, <laughs> right? If, if his temple is now you, how does he arrive? How does he come in? Well, he arrives in glory. He arrives to make the sinner holy. He arrives to retake residence of his house. The master of the house is back in residence. Now, over the last week, as you were brushing up on all of your royal tradition, preparing for the royal wedding, I know many of you were doing that, right? right? Did you learn about the royal standard? Right? It's the queen's flag that, that flies above the palace only when the queen is in residence. Right? So when the queen leaves the palace, flag comes down. Queen comes back to the palace, flag is raised. Sovereign leaves, flag goes down. Sovereign returns, the flag goes up. That's how it works. Now, when the queen isn't there, what do you suppose the servants are doing? I mean, as they're walking around the halls of Buckingham Palace and dusting the throne with the duster and all that kind of stuff, I know what I would be doing. What would you be imagining? You'd be imagining, what would it be like if I were the sovereign? If this were my house? Right? See, that's what we do. That's what sin is. Living in a house we didn't build and that we don't own and pretending to be the sovereign. But when the glory of the Lord enters your life, the royal standard goes up. The sovereign is back in residence. Where have you been pretending to be king in your life, queen in your life? Right? What, what rooms of your, of, of your life, what rooms of God's temple have you locked to try to keep out the owner? It won't work. Because the owner is holy and glorious, yes. And what's more, you don't really want it to work. Because the holy and glorious owner is also your redeemer. The holy and glorious owner is the one who comes to fix what is broken, to repair the house that has fallen into to ruin. The temple in Jerusalem was in ruins. But the glory of God is returning, and it would be right again. Our hearts are the same way. Our hearts are in, in ruins, but Jesus enters in glory to redeem, to fix, to undo all that is wrong, to reconcile the holy to the sinner so that he can keep the promise that he's made and dwell with his people forever. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that you make promises to us. Thank you that you have promised to us your divine presence. Lord, we were designed by you. We work only when we are in right relationship with you, and so you promise us nothing but that which is best for us. And so, God, we thank you for that promise. But we thank you also, Lord, that in our breaking of our end of the bargain, in our rebelling against you, Lord, you have, have determined a way, that you have made a plan for us to be able to be reconciled. And so, God, we give you praise for that. And we ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would come in to, to the lives of those who perhaps have never put their faith and trust in you, who have never understood rightly, have professed faith in Jesus honestly. 
that you would come in for the, for the first time and that you would indwell them and that you would change them from the inside out. You would give them an assurance of your relationship with them for all eternity. And Lord, for all of us who have, who have made that profession, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to identify those areas of our life, those little closets that we attempt to keep locked. Lord, that you would help us to open them, that you would come in, that you would clean, restore, and make right the ruins that we have made of our house. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that you would strengthen us in all that you call us to do for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.